2 Chronicles 20, verses 17 and 18. 2 Chronicles 20, 17 and 18. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you know everyone's life in this room and who is hearing this sermon intimately. You know all the details. And you have called this word to go forth today, Lord, by your wisdom, by your power. And I pray now that you'd fill me afresh with your spirit, that it would be directed by you, Lord, and go out and bear the fruit that you desire it to bear. God, prepare our hearts to receive from you, Lord, today. And cause this message, Lord, to bring you honor and glory and praise. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, um, one Sunday morning, Lisa and I received some absolutely devastating news. It's that kind of news that it just kind of takes your breath away. You feel like all the oxygen is sucked out of the room. You feel like uh, all the colors in the world are gone. Everything sounds mumbled instead of clear. It's that difficult type of news that you hear that if you're older, you probably are thinking of a time when you heard it. If you haven't experienced it, you probably will someday in your life. And it was just absolutely devastating. And, um, you know, I remember thinking, well, i got to go preach. And God granted the grace to preach. But a couple of days later, I had a funeral that I was doing. Or, I'm sorry, not a funeral, a wedding. And um, I went to the, the place where the wedding was happening. And, you know, you get to a place where you pray and you pray and you pray, and you're basically saying the same thing over and over again. And they're just, you just feel like your words are bouncing off the ceiling and they don't make any difference and they're not encouraging you. And even though you're praying, you feel hopeless. You know what I'm saying? And I remember going to this uh, wedding and next to it, as I said, there was a field, and I have hearing aids, and so what happens is I can pump music through my hearing aids. And so I was, uh, I had about an hour or so before, and, and I just didn't know what else to do. So I just kept playing these two songs, worship songs, over and over and over again. And what happened was is that at first they were just words. You know, they, they weren't, they, my heart wasn't in it. But what happened was God did this incredible thing. He started taking these songs that I was singing and slowly I meant to them. And it moved from hopelessness to hope-filled praise to God. The two songs were, first one was Sovereign by Chris Tomlin. The other one was Who Am I by Casting Crowns. But Sovereign, you know, you needed, I needed to know who God was at that moment. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign in the, on the ocean floor, with me in the calm, with me in the storm. Sovereign in my greatest joy, sovereign in my deepest cry, with me in the dark, with me in the dawn, 
in your everlasting arms all the pieces of my life from beginning to the end. I can trust you. In your never-failing love, you work everything for good. God, whatever comes my way, I will trust you. I couldn't sing, I will trust you. So I just changed it to help me trust you. I do that a lot in my worship, even here. Certain songs I personalize. Instead of saying our God, I say my God while I'm worshiping. And I did that then. And it goes on. God, whatever comes my way, I, help me trust you. All my hopes, all I need held in your hands. All my life, all of me held in your hands. All my fears, all my dreams held in your hands. Powerful song. More powerful, though, is what God did through praising him. And that is the main point of my message today, okay, is this, that praising God in hard times is difficult, but it will produce hope. It will produce hope. And what we see is that this principle is modeled over and over again in Second Chronicles. It's amazing how many times this is in that book Well, we're continuing on in our Route 66 series, taking a book of the Bible each week. And as I said last week, Chronicles was originally one book. Uh, The tradition was that they were written by Ezra about 70 years after the Babylonian captivity, somewhere around 450 to 425 B.C. Here's the outline of 2 Chronicles. Uh, Chapters 1 through 9, the reign of King Solomon, the United Kingdom. Then chapters 10 through 36... Kings after Solomon. Chapters 10 through 28 are the divided kingdom, and chapters 29 through 36 are the united kingdom. And what we have here is there are 23 chapters that record 20 kings of Judah. It's amazing. And of those 20 kings, we find that eight of those were good kings. The rest were evil kings. And we're, you know, we look for Christ in every book of the Bible. And when we look in Second Chronicles, we find Jesus as a reflection of those eight good kings. But even more so than that, if you uh, are looking in chapter 5, Solomon is dedicating the temple. It is now built. Last week we talked about how David stored up all the stuff to build it. Well, uh, Solomon built it, and they're dedicating the temple. And what happens is the glory of the Lord fills the temple. That is Christ. That is the presence of the living God filling the temple. And so we find Christ in Second Chronicles in numerous ways. Um, what was the purpose behind this book? And again, as we talked about last week, you have to think about who the book was written to. It was written to exiles. These people had been 70 years in captivity. How many of you are over 70 years old? Just a few of us. That means everybody else, all they knew was captivity, nothing else. And now they're going into this land, and they go into this promised city of Jerusalem, which they hear the stories from their parents and grandparents, how glorious it was, and all they see it is is leveled. And they're discouraged. They're hopeless. And so Chronicles is written to that group of people in order to encourage them. And in 2 Chronicles, what we find is that the first nine chapters, the way that God was going to encourage his people is to remind them of the greatness of King Solomon. Here's King Solomon's rule. Here's what he did to encourage those who are beat down. Then what we have is all these other stories. But there are five revivals 
in 2 Chronicles. Five revivals where the people were walking in sin and the king repented. The king brought the people to back to the place where they should be with God. And what we see is that these stories were meant to remind the exiles what happened, why they were exiled, and not to do that anymore. But also what it would do is this. Those stories about Solomon and those revivals would encourage these hopeless people, would encourage them to realize that God would forgive them if they repented. God would heal their land if they would humbly go before God and repent and pray. So no matter what was occurring, if there was repentance, then there would be forgiveness and God would restore. Take a look. Second Chronicles 7.14. I was so tempted to, to preach on this verse, okay? Because everybody knows Second Chronicles for these two verses. And the natural, I don't know, the natural rebel in me says, I don't want to preach on those two verses. And God didn't lead me to do that anyway. But here it is. Second Chronicles 7.14 through 15. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. It's talking about the temple. So God says, you know what? You repent, I will hear, I will forgive, I will heal. And then in 1 John 1, 9 would be the New Testament parallel. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What we're finding, what you'll see a pattern in Second Chronicles, is you'll get a picture of how to respond when you're feeling hopeless, helpless, overwhelmed, or fearful. We've all been there. And if, we haven't, if you haven't been there, you're probably going to be there sometime in your life. And what we see is that what Chronicles is teaching us is this, is that in tragedy or in trials, we need to take our burden to God. And we do that through fasting and prayer and something we usually don't get to, praise. What do we have here? You know, the, the one king that I'm going to focus on is Jehoshaphat, okay? Jehoshaphat was one of the good kings. All right, but something was happening. Armies were gathering around him, coming against the nation. Things did not look good, and there is no indication at all in Scripture that this was because of some kind of sin in the camp, in Jehoshaphat or in the nation of Israel. It just seems like the, the armies were gathering around in order to destroy him. You know, sometimes, sometimes, there is no known reason for the tragedy that you're going through. You don't understand it. You know, you, what do we do as soon as something negative happens? We blame ourselves and then we try to figure out where we sinned, right? Sometimes that's not the case. It's not a sin in your part. How about parents? When your kids go off the rails, you blame yourself. If I would have only done this, if I would have done that, you know, then it would be different. The truth of the matter is that sometimes tragedy happens. Things occur, and it's not because God is disciplining or because there's sin in your life. It's just happening. It doesn't make it any easier. It's just really hard. It's really hard. And you look for a reason, but you can't find any. And sometimes that's the case. 
But if it is sin, there's sin in your life and you're reaping the consequences of it and you're just overwhelmed, understand that there is forgiveness in the gospel. As it says here, if you repent, if you repent, seek God, then he will forgive. Now, it doesn't mean he'll take away all the consequences. Sometimes he does, but many times he doesn't. So what we see is, is that God has, has done something here with Jehoshaphat that he can't, we don't see any indication of sin in his life. And yet God is bringing this to him for a purpose. You know, we can't understand all of God's ways is what the word of God says. But this hard thing is coming and there's no reason for it. It just seems to be coming. And Jehoshaphat responded in the way that we usually do initially respond. He prayed. Jehoshaphat prayed. You know, when, when, the, when the wheels are coming off, when the color of the world is all sucked out and there's no air in the room and you feel hopeless, we quickly usually go to prayer. I don't know how long we stay there, but we go to prayer. And Jehoshaphat's prayer is this wonderful prayer because it gives us a pattern to follow. And it's a pattern that we're trying to do in this church. We've, had, we've tried for the last couple of years. Look at this prayer. First of all, some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. He prayed and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So this army is coming, and he doesn't know what, you know, we, didn't, we thought we were walking with you, God, and yet there's this big battle ahead of us. And so he just said, you know what, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray, which is what we do when, we're, when we run into a difficult time. Look at this prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. Uh, Jehoshaphat said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. He's ascribing sovereign power to God. He's praising God for who God is. He's saying, this is who you are, God. I think when we do that, we need to start prayer because it reminds us of who we're coming to, which causes an awe, but also causes faith. Because this is who God is. Lord, I worship you. You are the creator of all things. Lord Jesus, right now you are holding everything together in the universe. God, that you had a plan for all things before the foundations of the world. God, you are all-powerful. You rule and you reign. Even now, you're seated in the highest place in heaven. And somehow, whatever this means, God, your glory fills the temple. And that's what he did. He prayed that. He's reminding himself of who God is, the greatness of God in his character, in his nature. And then look what happens after that. He says, did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? He's not just proclaiming who God is, but he's proclaiming the deeds of the living God. You know, it was interesting this morning because the guys didn't know what I was praying, uh, preaching about. And one of the guys was praying this. We started praying about something and he said, God, you are the God who divided the Red Sea. You are the God who spoke everything out of nothing. You are the God. He started recounting the feats of God in the past. 
I would say this, when we get to that place where we're praying and, and we're worshiping God and we're reminded of the things that he has done in the past, don't just think about the big things in the Bible. Think about the little things in your own life. Lord, I remember the day when you provided sunglasses for my wife, Lisa. They were the perfect sunglasses. And Lord, I remember the day when you did this and when you did that, when you saved this kid's life and et cetera, et cetera. You recount the, the things that God has done in the past to build up that faith. God, you have not abandoned me in the past. You will not abandon me now. And so we see this praising of who God is, and then we see this movement into the action of God in our lives and in the world, just recounting those things. I love here, he's also talking about a promise, and it uh, gave it forever to the descendants of Ad Abraham, your friend. That you made that promise, God. You made a promise. You know, when you, when you get to that place sometimes where it's all so dark, you feel like God's abandoned you, don't you? You feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. And that's when you say, Lord, your word says you will never leave me nor, free, nor forsake me. That's a promise you made to me. And I'm standing on that right now. Lord, you, you said that you would forgive all that I have done because of the cross. So I'm coming to you on that pro promise. And look what happens. He continues on, verse 9. For your name is in this house and cry out to you in our affliction and will hear and save, and you will hear and save. What is he doing? He's coming on the basis of, his, of the relationship God has with Israel. He's saying, for your name is in this house. Israel is your nation. You called her as your nation. And so when we go to God, we say, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, our Father, we're coming to him because of the relationship, the covenant relationship. And here we see it happening again in the Old Testament. This is your house, God. This is your people. You have called us together as your people. And I'm coming because of that, because of who I am in Christ, Lord. You know that I can come because of that. And so that's what he's laying down. The, the prayer uh, is on the basis of that covenantal relationship with God. And the same thing with us, Lord. You saved me. You pulled me out of the garbage heap. And God, you put a ring on my finger and a robe on my back. You call me your child. You adopted me. I'm yours, Lord. I'm yours. That's part of that second song that I was singing over and go, who am I? Well, I'm yours. That's how it concludes. I am yours. So you're great. God is so sovereign, Chris Tomlin, and I'm yours. So I was combining those two. Didn't even realize it at the time. And he goes on. Coming to drive us out of our possession which, have given, which you have given us to inherit. Describe the trouble. Lord, I feel hopeless because I was just diagnosed with cancer. Or I was just told that, um, that my spouse was going to leave me. Or I was just told that so-and-so died. Whatever it might be. You know, God, I, this, I, I feel this is my struggle right here. God, this is the trouble I'm in. I sinned, and now this is what's happening. Sometimes we're a little afraid to talk about that in prayer, but we need to just be honest with God. And then he goes on, look at this. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? In other words, you ask God for help. Lord, I'm in way over my head. I honestly, God, I don't know what to do. I, I don't even know how to minister to them. I remember going over to a, a home one time where the father died 
in a truck accident that morning, and it was I was just barely in, in ministry here, and I had to walk into a room with seven or eight kids crying because they lost their dad. And I remember praying the whole way there, God, I have no idea what I'm doing. I am in so much over my head here. So you got to do something, God. That's a place where we need to be at all times, not just during the big difficulties, right? You know, when everything is crashing and burning, it's real easy to go to God right away and admit we're out of, we can't, we're helpless, we can't do anything. But really, we need God all the time. Plea for help. For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. God, I can't do it. I need you. I don't know how to handle this. I just, I, I don't know, God. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I think somehow if I say the right thing, then magically it'll be gone. But that's not going to happen. So I need you, God, to work on my behalf. And then finally, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You put your trust in the Lord. Lord, I, my hope is in you. I can't control the situation. I'm trying. I want to, but I can't. So I got to trust in you, Lord. Help me to do that. Help me to trust in you. What a great prayer. And I want to say that no matter your trial or your struggle or your difficulty, whether that be a physical sickness, a diagnosis that gives you very little hope or your family, maybe it's a, a depression that is so heavy that you just can't seem to shake, Maybe it's uh, an injury of some sort. Maybe it's a marital struggle or a financial struggle. And you just, you just feel hopeless. It's just so overwhelming that you don't know what to do. No matter what that trial or difficulty is, God calls you to, tr to trust in him and to cry out to him. Tell him how you're feeling. Let him know. Cry out to him for your every need. That's exactly what Jehoshaphat did. Take a look at God's word again. Jehoshaphat chapter 20, 15, and 17. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Look at this. Stand firm. Hold your position. I love that. Because what happens when we feel overwhelmed? We have a tendency to just give up, don't we? We have a tendency to, we, we can even give up on prayer. Just being honest. And so what happens is he says, no, you stand firm. When God produces this hope in us, when our eyes are on Christ, when we see his glory and his promises to us, what happens is God says, you don't be afraid, Dan. You stand firm. You keep going. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Now that doesn't mean that the situation will always change. In this case, it did. But sometimes what happens is, is just by us keeping our eyes on the Lord, what occurs is He changes our heart. And the salvation of the Lord isn't because we were delivered from the struggle that we're facing, but rather we can have hope in Christ through the struggle. And the salvation of our Lord is there providing the hope that we need that we don't have. Because people that have no hope, life is miserable. You, you have no desire to do anything. And when God changes and comes in, he says, you stand your ground, you keep looking at me, you trust in me, and I'll give you the hope that you do not have because your hope is in me, not in even the situation changing. You know that you're my child. You know that I have called you from the foundations of the world, that you are precious to me, and I will take care of you. And he goes on. 
O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. That's the key. The Lord is with us. We're never alone. But it sure feels like we are sometimes, doesn't it? Just saying. You just feel like, God, are you hearing my prayer? And it goes on in Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Okay, old school Christians. You remember that worship song? Ah, Lord God, you remember that? Oh, yeah, that was a worship song. There it is, right there, right out of God's word. Man, we used to jump with that one. (laughs) It's okay to raise your hands, everyone. You don't have to, but I mean, it's okay. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Wow. Wow. God loves to display his power on behalf of weak people who trust him. That's what we see in God's word. We confess that weakness. We confess our need for God. and He just loves to, to show his power through strengthening us or doing a miracle in the situation. You know, when we're in those hard times, those difficult things that happen, that overwhelm us, that hit us like a, like a hurricane and cause us to feel like everything is out of control and where's their stability, you know, our first response is usually to pray. You know why? Because it makes sense to us. It makes sense to us because we say, I'm out of control. I, I can't control this, so I've got to go to one who is sovereign and all-powerful, so we pray. You see, but Jehoshaphat's second response doesn't make sense to us. That's why seldom do we get there. It doesn't make any sense. Now, I have to uh, let you know before I, I say this is that God had promised Jehoshaphat and Israel a victory, but the victory wasn't there yet. You see, the, the hordes were still gathering around. The enemy was all around them. Okay, And a prophet came and said, this is what the Lord says. So they had God's word. But how many people, if you were in that army, would have thought, is that really God? I mean, he's a prophet and everything, but yeah, I don't know. The situation hasn't changed. The enemy's still there. It is not looking good for us. So you have to understand that before you see the next step that Jehoshaphat made. Because it's so important for us when we're in that hard place in life. We're just difficult, difficult to see. And we've prayed and it just feels empty. And the second thing that Jehoshaphat did was he began to praise God. That doesn't make sense, does it? Take a look at God's word again. 2 Chronicles 20, 18, and then 21 and 22. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. People ask me this, they say, what does it mean to, to, to pray with your you know, face to the ground? What does it mean to, to do that? This is what it is. It's just this. And you just pray like that. You pray on your face is what they call it. That's what they were doing. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head and with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Worshiping the Lord. 21, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire, and they went before the army 
and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Amnon, uh, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. I find it interesting, especially in the Old Testament, how many times God sent the, pray, the worship team before the army. Walls of Jericho, everything. It's very interesting. Here's another case. Very interesting. And then in the New, New Testament, in Acts 16, 24 through 26, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were, were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Locked up. There was no promise to these brothers. There was no prophet that came or no nothing. They were just there in a bad place looking at the death sentence probably. And they just said, okay, man. I'm sure they prayed. And then they got to that place where they said, you know what, we're just going to sing praise to God. And And the whole prison heard them. The whole prison heard them. You see, we pray to God and we praise Him on the basis of that covenantal relationship we have with God. That's what they were doing. We were, we were enemies. We were outcasts. We had the wrath of God upon us. And then God in His loving kindness sent Jesus who would live that perfect sinless life and thought, word, or deed, and, and deed. He would fulfill the law for us. And then he would go to the cross and be punished brutally for even your smallest sin so that God could be just and the justifier. And Christ died on the cross, rose three days later. And then what that did was that opened up the door that now we could, by God's grace only, through his faith only and Christ Jesus only, We could be adopted into the family. We're royal children, kids of the king. And with that comes all these benefits. And so what we have is this covenantal relationship with God. And so when you start thinking about that, that should produce something in you. It should produce worship and praise. It should produce worship and praise for who God is and for who you are. Produce this natural response of worship in a heart that has been transformed by God through his, the power of his spirit. It's just natural. I was dead, now I'm alive. I had judgment, now I've been forgiven. I have eternal life. This holy God, who am I? Who am I? that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name. First line in Who Am I? by Casting Crowns. Who am I? Not because of what I, who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. There it is, the gospel. The glorious gospel. And so we come in prayer, and once we get our heads around of the depth of the gospel, worship and praise just comes forth because of the greatness of our God. 
and who he is. And what happens then is that once we're saved, we must worship God in spirit and in truth is what his word says. Take a look. This is what his word says. John 4, 23 through 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That's what he is saying in his word. This is the story of when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well and he says, hey, you know, you, you got, you've had a, quite a few husbands and the guy you're living with right now isn't your husband. And she wants to change the subject. So she says, well, where do you think is the right place to worship, in Jerusalem or Samaria? And Jesus kind of just says, uh-uh, no. It's not about a place. Worship is so much more than that. Worship is about worshiping in spirit when you're in right relationship with me you will be able to worship me in a way that it, I am worthy of. And it's in truth. That's a tough one. In truth. What does that mean? What we see is this. Is that worship is derived from worth, W-O-R-T-H, worth-ship. In other words, assigning to God his true value. Worship is assigning to God his true value value. What it does is that worship, our worship to God is informed, is based on, based on our understanding of who God is and what he has done. That's what worship, worship to God is all about. Who is God? And what he has done for us. That's where worship is, comes forth. That's the depth of worship. It, it starts there. And, 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 and the truth is, is this, that the deeper you go into the truth about who God is, okay, the higher your worship is going to go. The higher your worship is going to go. The deeper, the more understanding you have on who God is, the higher your worship is going to go. I love this statement. The purpose for theology is doxology. What? The purpose of theology, the study of God. Why do we get into the Word of God? Why do we preach the Word of God up front? Why do you have your quiet times? The purpose of theology, the study of God. We could also use the word doctrine. The purpose of theology or doctrine is doxology. What the heck is doxology? It's praise. So the purpose that we study is so we would praise God in a greater measure. Isn't that true? I remember as a new believer, I'm just praising God for, well, God, I praise you for who you are. And that's all we would pray. Because I didn't really know who he was. So I'd praise God for that. And that was okay. But as I got to know God, all of a sudden it's, you know what? I praise you, God, because you are omnipresent. And you are all-powerful. God, you are sovereign. And I started going deeper into those things, and I could praise God in a, in a greater measure because I still understood who my God was. You see, that's the purpose for theology and doctrine. It's so sad because I know personally uh, a pastor approached me one time and said, um, he said, you get too much into the word of God. He said, doctrine isn't that important. And I thought, what? 
Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. Here's why doctrine is important. Because you live and you pray and you think on the basis of your doctrine. I'll tell you this. An Arminian prays differently than a Calvinist. An Arminian lives differently than a Calvinist. Because if you are in the world and you don't know Christ, you have certain beliefs. It's your doctrine. Whether you think this is right or wrong or what is important. And you have that doctrine. And whether you realize it or not, many times subconsciously, you are making decisions and you are living in, line, in alignment with what your doctrine that you believe is. And that's somebody who's lost. So how can doctrine not make a difference in Christians? Of course it does. It affects everything. I had somebody coming up to me after the first service, and they said, you said something interesting. You said a Calvinist prays differently than an Arminian. And I said, absolutely. And he goes, I've never heard that before. How can you pray that? And I said, well, let's just take a couple of things. Say you don't believe that God is sovereign over all things. Okay, so you pray that God would maybe kind of consider doing something. Whereas you might, if you're a Calvinist, you might say, God, you have tomorrow in your hands and you know everything that's going on and you are in sovereign control. I'm going to rest in that. What if you believe this about God? It's called open theism. God doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. How do you pray then for tomorrow? How do you pray to God and if you don't believe that God influences people to save them, then isn't it isn't kind of hypocritical to believe that, but yet ask God to intervene and take and draw somebody to himself and save them? When, wait a minute, isn't free, completely free will? I'm just challenging you on that. You see, you pray differently. You live differently. Your doctrine is what, you, is, is, what is the foundation of that. And so as we grow in our understanding of who God is, it affects the way we live. It affects the way we pray. It affects how we praise God. It affects all those things. And true worship recognizes God's character and nature. True worship recognizes that God's character and nature is revealed generally through creation. That's why you can walk and be blown away by God when you see something outside in creation. You just, it just overwhelms you. You know, you're walking and you're just carrying on your life, right? And for some reason you see a butterfly and you're blown away by that. And then you start thinking about the whole idea of, of how this butterfly was formed and you go, God, you are awesome. I mean, you created this out of nothing in the whole process. And then we see God's character and nature revealed specifically through the Bible. That's why we want to understand the Word of God. What does it say? What does it not say? And then finally, we see the nature and the character of God revealed fully in Jesus. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. You see, we find who God is in Christ, our compassionate Savior, our friend, the King of kings, the Lord of glory, seated in the highest place, embracing us, never leaving us, nor forsaking us. What a God. And you see, that's why you should and will have, at times, emotions affected by the truth of the gospel. There are times when you're going to hear a worship song and you're going to cry because it overwhelms you. And you know what? We got a bunch of Norwegians here. 
it's okay to raise your hands. All right? But I want to say this. It doesn't make you more holy if you do raise your hands, and God doesn't hear you more if you raise your hands. All right? But let's not run away from this because when we start understanding, I'll be honest, there's certain songs we do not sing here in this church because we don't feel they're, they're uh, theologically accurate. That simple. But when we sing a song, if God is moving in your heart, then react. It's okay. If you want to sob, sob. If you want to raise your hand, raise your hand. It's okay. Because why? When we understand the greatness of our God and we are being overwhelmed by something in that worship song, emotion is part of how God created us. It's okay to respond with emotion. But again, we got to be careful that we're not all walking in pride and saying, well, look at that guy. He's not raising his hands, so he must really not be worshiping God. Because I've been in places like that. And that's not true. But the other side is not true either. Look at those guys. He's just showing off. No, he's not. He's worshiping God. Leave him be. It's okay. It's okay. Because when we understand the depth of our great God and wherever we're at in life, and all of a sudden this song comes up, and it just hits us exactly where we are. And you know what? In our intellect, we know it's true, but in our heart, we're having a hard time. And that's when we sing it over and over and over again like I had to for over an hour, those two songs, because they were just words in the beginning. But God did a miracle. He was going to change my heart. And what he did was he caused me to listen to those songs even when they were dry, even when they were just words, because he was going to take me to a place where I needed to be hopeful, and he did. That was a work of God. Even in my hopelessness, darkness, he is the one who brought me to the place where I needed to be, that I was resisting. And he took me to that place by his grace and his mercy. So it's okay. Sometimes it takes a while for God to get through, and sometimes it will affect your emotions. Now, I understand that worship is more than Sunday morning singing, okay? If you want to get technical, worship is, is uh, preaching of God's Word. It is also teaching of God's Word. It's the fellowship meal that we're going to have after this service. It's prayer. It's the Lord's Supper. It's so much more than just singing or praising God, but I'm focusing in on that. And the glory of it is this, is that we can worship God anywhere, anytime. That was the point he was making to the woman at the well. We can worship him anywhere, anytime. Take a look at God's word again. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's worship. Do it for the glory of God. He is worthy. And then John MacArthur. Worship is all that we are reacting rightly to all that he is. That's what was happening to me all those years ago. And then Stephen Cole, worship is an inner attitude and feeling of awe, reverence, gratitude, and love toward God, resulting from a realization of who he is and who we are. Sovereign, who he is. Who am I? I am his. And worship comes forth, breaks forth in our hearts. True worship is knowing and loving and adoring Jesus. It's so much more than just singing. But it's all those things. But the key is it's from a heartfelt faith in Jesus and a devotion to him. That's why I can say this. 
that the people who have made the meal for us today are worshiping God when they're serving it to us and made it. And when we clean up after, it's an extension of our worship and the fellowship after. So it's so much broader than that, than just singing. But my heart is focusing on this. And that's why Jesus intensely yearns to make Christians people who worship God in spirit and in truth. He's going to make that happen. He's going to take those times when you can't barely pray and he's saying, well, now what I want you to do is I want you to praise me. I, I don't have it in me. Just start. I have done that uh, numerous times in counseling. I've told people, I want you to do something. And they'd say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Just, just trust me on this one. And, uh, you know, this is one of those ones where it seems so simplistic for me to tell you this. When you hit bottom, sing praise to God. That sounds so simplistic. But I'm telling you, God uses it. God uses it. Because sometimes the only solutions in life are the simple ones. Right? It's just the simple ones. We try to confuse it. It's just the simple ones. It doesn't have to make sense. It's hard to do. God's got to enable you to do it. But we just praise him. We play that song over and over and over and over and over and over again. And then suddenly we see God moving in our hearts. It's amazing. So what difficulty are you going through right now? What is it? What are you struggling with? You know, if you've sinned and you're reaping the consequences of it, then repent. Repent. That's what the Word of God says. That's part of Second Chronicles, is that when we repent, God forgives and He heals. It doesn't mean all the consequences will be gone, but repent if the difficult trial that you're in is due to your sin. Sometimes what you need to do is you need to just forgive the people that have hurt you. You know, part of the pain that you're in, you're in the midst of it, you're having a hard time, and you just got to forgive whoever hurt you. You say, I can't do that. I understand that because I had a relationship with my dad that was like that, and I had to ask God to first help me want to forgive my dad, and it was amazing how quickly he moved me to help me forgive my dad to I forgive my dad. But you have to forgive those who have hurt you, who have wounded you. Maybe that's part of the reason you're in the hole and you feel so hopeless. But in all things, trust God. In all things. Allow the Holy Spirit to produce hope during hard times through worship and praise to God. It'll happen. As amazing as it sounds, it'll happen. And when God does that work in your heart, produces that hope, it's amazing how all of life seems to change, even when the circumstances don't. It's amazing. Praise God for who He is. Get to know who He is. Study the Word. Know the depth of your great God, the depth of His love, the depth of His character, the glorious richness of the cross. Oh, the, the breadth and the width of the love of God. Get to know it. Because it'll produce praise in you that you would never realize you could go to. 
the heights of worship. Praise him for who he is and for his promises and thank him for what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do because he has made promises to you in a new covenant that you are his child and he will take care of you till the end and you will spend all eternity with him. Those are promises. Stand on them and watch how God changes your heart from hopelessness to filled with hope in who our great God is. Amen? Let's pray.